I was stepping over piles of dead bodies. There were body parts everywhere. There were people with words carved into their legs. And I just wasn't ready for that, and I threw up. You're listening to the Storytellers Project podcast, where real people from Palm Springs to Nashville, from Tallahassee to Detroit, tell stories about the times their lives changed, and they learned something worth sharing with you. Some stories are funny, and some are harrowing, and all are coached by journalists from the USA Today Network and told live. It's storytelling and journalism coming together so we all can get a little closer, whether we live across town or across the country. I'm Megan Finnerty. Today's episode is about life and death. We've got three stories about moments in life that brush up against death. A story about recovery from addiction, another looks at overcoming PTSD, and the last centers on a migrant crossing the Sonoran Desert. Our first story is from Brad Schmidt of Nashville. So my story starts when I was eight years old and I lost my dad. Uh, he, had, uh, he had cancer. And it is still painful to talk about. 40 years later. So there's an eight-year-old boy, uh, two of us, I'm a twin, and, uh, and I didn't have my dad. And I, was, I felt a great sense of loss, as you, know, you can imagine. And my mother was um, the daughter of World War II parents, and we lift ourselves up by the bootstraps, and we keep our feelings suppressed, and we don't cry, or we give you something to cry about, right? And we don't process anything, and we don't know what the word process means. We, you know, we, we suck it up, is what we do in this family. And I was just empty and so sad. And I didn't really have anybody to talk to about that. So, so began my, my, you know, drugs of choice. Number one, food. Two was attention. So, uh, man, if I told a funny joke in class and, and, the, and everybody was laughing, I was like, oh. I craved attention and love so badly, you know, I didn't get any in the house. And so I couldn't play guitar, and I was a terrible athlete. Um, but I could write a sentence, and I could talk. And so I found media, like, young. I was, there was this cable outlet, like Wayne and Garth stuff, you know that home, uh, that channel that the cable company has to, used to have to set aside. And I got really active with storytelling. And I found I could do that on video, and I could do that on radio, and I could, and I could write it, and I could communicate, and I could hold the camera on Friday night, football night, for my high school, and the cheerleaders knew my name. <laughs> went to college, went for journalism at Temple University in Philly. Fraternities, keg parties, keg stands, you have to drink 32 ounces to be let in as a pledge. Hell yeah. <laughs> I was down from the start. You don't, I don't, you know, it doesn't have to be a contest. I'll drink the 32 ounces while y'all are still sleeping in the morning. You know, I wanted to be drunk and I wanted to be high. And, uh, and so a funny thing happened after college. Everybody started getting jobs and they started drinking less. And I'm like, what happened, man? I'm like in my early 30s going, hey, what's wrong with you wusses? Where's the party? I didn't understand that people were growing up, and I wasn't. I, I, I still crazy. I just got lost. I got lost. And I got lost in the alcohol, and I got lost in some cocaine, and, uh, and I got two DUIs in three years. 
Well, you are never going to find a DA who is going to do anything but put you in jail for 45 days. Maybe there's one or two. Good news, we got the one or two. You can go to jail for a couple days and you're going to go to rehab for 28. <laughs> yeah. Rehab has all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> Conversely, and I don't know how many of you know this, jail food sucks. <laughs> I went to this, this rehab place that had Tempur-Pedic mattresses. Two weeks in, a guy who I smoked pot with every single day, drank a case of beer with every single day for two years in a row, pops up into one of the meetings. Hey, I'm so-and-so, and I'm five years clean. I was like, that's my using buddy, and he used exactly like me. And he's talking, and he looks at me, and I look at him, and he goes, yep, it's me. We've been waiting for you. To that end, I have managed to amass six and a half years clean, which is great. <laughs> Thank you. With the help of a lot of people, and a lot of them are sitting in this room, it wasn't easy because everything is counterintuitive, right? When you get out of rehab, like all your buddies are gone, like you're by yourself. I was by myself. And so, man, I had to keep reaching out, keep reaching out, keep calling, keep reaching out. I, had to call, I didn't have a car or a driver's, so I needed to get to meetings, I needed to get to the gym, I needed to get to job interviews, I needed to get and I would call five, six, seven, eight guys that I met in meetings. Sometimes I would get to the eighth person and I would be sobbing on the phone. Why is this so hard? And the eighth person would pick up and go, hello? <gasps> I need to get to a meeting. Okay. Cool, man, see you soon. <laughs> and I learned from that, I have to pay this forward. And so I go to all sorts of different places, not to speak to necessarily, but to be one of. I have to be in the middle as I have to be in the middle of the boat. I have to be another bozo on the bus, throw out any recovery cliche that you want. But it's important for me because ego is still a problem for me, as you can probably tell from tonight. Ego is still a problem. I can still get caught up in wanting that attention. I can still get caught up in wanting the quick fix. I still get caught up in wanting the girl. I still sometimes seek that cheap validation. But as long as I keep helping other people, as long as I stay centered, as long as I keep a connection with my higher power, then I always have a fighting chance and I usually have a pretty good time. And I have some peace. Guess what I get to write about now? Other people. That is an honor. It is a privilege. I get to keep, take myself out of it and lift up other people and let them tell their own stories and let them communicate and let them have a voice where they might not otherwise. That is a gift. One blessing, one gift, one beautiful story after another. I thank you for listening to mine. That story was from Brad Schmidt of Nashville. We're so thankful for that insight into what it looks like to overcome a lifelong struggle with addiction. Thank you so much, Brad. Our next story is from Ryan Kitchell of Phoenix. Where are my Texas people at? Anybody? All right, we got a few. Um, I was a good old Texas boy, and I believed in God, and I loved baseball, and my family. Those were my main things. And high school was ending, and for some reason, I still can't figure out why, the colleges weren't beating my door down to come play for them. 
Yeah, right? That's rude. So you're missing out on this power. So uh, I'm going to pursue my second passion, which was photography. And I found out that you can do it in the military. So I joined. I went to boot camp. I went to photography school in Baltimore. And then they sent me to San Diego on a ship. And they were about to go on a deployment. It was the Navy, by the way. I don't know if you picked up the ship part. So um, I was stoked. I'm like, let's go overseas. And I started to notice, like, so many people took everything so seriously in the military. I'm like, relax, everybody. It's not a big deal. So what? We're in the military. So at a time when you're kind of ripped away from your family and all your friends, I met these three dudes who were just like me, who made fun of everything and who could find humor in anything. And it was like instant family, just like that. And so we went on a deployment. And my early photography gigs were very boring, like award ceremonies. I'm like pinning a medal on the chest. And I'm like, oh, good shot, Captain. And, but I was a professional photographer. I was literally getting paid to do photography. So, right, that's a professional. So I guess I did that well enough. And my three buddies would come up to the photo lab and they would see my photos I took and they were like, oh, great, Kitchell, good job. And we'd make fun of it and we'd actually reenact the award ceremonies. And instead of the captain of the ship penning a medal, we'd get like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and hold it up and shake hands and I'd take photos and I had a whole book of those things and that was good fun. And then I, I, I did that well enough so they're like, all right, you get to do more complicated stuff now like dangling out of helicopters and taking aerial photography, which was awesome. And then um, I got my first overseas gig and I was like, oh, bring it on. What am I doing? They're like, you're going to East Timor. And I go, okay, what's that? I've never heard of it. It's a real country. Um, apparently there was a civil war there. And my job as a 19-year-old kid was to fly in and take photos of, of what had just happened. And I really didn't know what to expect. But as the helicopter was landing, I could kind of look out the window and see all these crumbled buildings. There were some buildings with smoke still coming out of them and fire. And the, the Civil War was over. And my job was to document it for history. And as soon as I got off the helicopter, I was stepping over piles of dead bodies. There were body parts everywhere. There were people with words carved into their legs. And I just wasn't ready for that. And I threw up. And a guy who I'd never met before and never saw again, he came up to me and said, I see what you're doing. I see what you're going through. Put it in a shoebox in your head and close the lid, and you deal with it later. And I did that. He said, do your job. And I did my job. And when I got on that helicopter back to the ship, I left my belief in God right there on East Timor. I've never seen it since, and I haven't even looked for it, to be honest. Um, but my buddies still, at the end of that, they didn't, never quite knew what I went through, but they were there for me. They could sense something was up, and all we did was joke, and we watched There's Something About Mary for the 500th time. Or The Truman Show, that was one of the only other DVDs we had. It was a good year for movies, though. Check it out. Um, then 9-11 then happened, and as a photographer, it was about two more years of that same thing, just helicoptering in to a place where very bad things just happened and documenting it, or going into a place where very bad things were still happening and trying to document it. It was horrific. And it came time for me to get out, and I was definitely getting out. Whoa. Um, there was no way I was staying in the military. But all my, my three buddies, they were all gone. They'd been, they, they were with their families for a while, and I was kind of alone. You know when you hear people say, I, I felt dead inside? I didn't feel that. I felt nothing for a long time. And it's a weird feeling when you feel nothing because you don't really think about it that much either because there's just nothing there. 
And at one point, I was so close to getting out, I went into a bathroom with a handgun, and I chambered it, and I put the gun in my mouth, and I looked in the mirror, and I took the safety off. Then I slid my finger over the trigger, and I stared at myself, and right then, I kind of felt something. I don't know what it was, but it was terrifying. And obviously, nothing happened, I'm here. And um, so about two weeks later, I was getting out, packing up a U-Haul of my stuff, driving to Phoenix from San Diego. And I looked in the rearview mirror, and I could see that skyline of San Diego, which I took for granted, by the way, shrinking and shrinking. And I thought, I'm so lucky to be alive, and the future is going to be so incredible now since all this bad stuff is behind me. And I don't think that, that statement, now that all this bad stuff is behind me, I've never been more wrong in my life about anything. Um, so the nightmare started immediately. We're talking like um, something your story about your husband. The faces would come alive, and the, the ones I photographed, and they would attack me in my sleep, and I would wake up screaming or crying for help or, or yelling or punching things. And that was the mild nightmares. So I found out, I thought I was so clever at the time, if I drank the right amount of whiskey, but you already know where I'm going, <laughs> just the right amount, I wouldn't have those nightmares, or I wouldn't remember them, I didn't care, whatever. So I did that for a while, and I'm like, look at me, I'm so smart. Um, I found out later that is called self-medicating, and it's bad because it's, there's never an amount. It's always more whiskey, or fill in the blank with whatever drug it is that you're self-medicating with. You gotta take more and more and more to get that same result. And I was just kind of on that trip for a couple years, and it got really, really bad. It got to this point, it was really getting out of control. I lost my job, and I was days away from being foreclosed upon. And I found out one night that a good friend of mine who was still in had hanged himself. And that one hit me really, really, really hard. And I drank a little bit extra that night. And when I woke up the next day, which I still think I was pretty lucky to even wake up after drinking that much, I stumbled over to the foreclosed bathroom mirror and I had this epiphany. I, I always said uh, I never wanted to die, I never wanted to kill myself, but I was doing that slowly. And I realized I was gonna die on this path I was on and I've gotta get help. So that was my day, that was my turning point moment. The good news for me is my insurance is through the VA, so <laughs> easy breezy. Good laughs in the front row on that one. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, so uh, let's skip that boring part. Weeks and weeks to get an appointment, blah, blah, blah. Um, finally, they got me the psychiatrist, and I was so jacked up to get my life on track. And he showed up more drunk than I was, I swear to God. And I demanded a new one, and they gave me a new one, and I call him Dr. Scriptpad guy, man. He basically <laughs> pulled out his script pad and was like, you're getting on all these nine medications that I can't pronounce, um, or else I'm not even working with you. And I didn't want to do that. I know there's a better way. And so I demanded another one, and the VA was like, look, kid, uh, we got one more, and you're SOL. So she was wonderful, except for she was like obsessed with hypnotizing. She constantly hypnotized, I gotta hypnotize you, gotta hypnotize you. I didn't wanna do that, and I left. And as hard as I worked to get help, I was so devastated that the VA couldn't help me. Um, so I said, I'm gonna fix this on my own. And shockingly, the only thing that happened was it got worse because of the aforementioned self-medicating thing. Kept needing more alcohol. And then I developed this crippling social anxiety. I could barely leave the house. When I did, I couldn't have anybody behind me. 
constantly looking, and loud noises, forget about it, my day's ruined. It was all this, the typical stuff you hear about, but I refused to believe I had PTSD, because that's sort of what they teach you, is you're not tough if you admit to having problems or whatever. There's no course on that, that's kind of what, what you learn. So I was doing anything I could to get better. I was trying to drink less, I failed. I was trying to go out and do some volunteer work here and there, and I did. And I overheard that there are these like satellite veteran centers that aren't connected to the VA, and they'll help you. So I called one, and that same day, they're like, yeah, come in at four. And I was like, hello? <laughs> <laughs> like, you mean like four next month? They're like, no, four o'clock. So I go in, I didn't know what to expect, and I'm introduced to this guy, his name's Stephen Shore. He was a counselor at the Mesa Vet Center. His master's in social work and counseling, two of them. He's very accomplished. And the first thing I liked about Stephen was he wasn't drunk. And <laughs> the second thing I liked is he didn't want to hypnotize me. So already good start. I sat down with Stephen and I started telling him the stuff I just told you guys about the crippling anxiety and the drinking and all that. And he's just going like, mm-hmm. He was an army vet. He was in the Gulf War. He had been through the same stuff as me, a lot of the same things. And he had the same struggles as me. The difference was Stephen sitting on that couch as a professional with a family and he can eat at a restaurant and go to a concert. He was a whole person and I wanted to be that. I wanted to be like Steven. So we met once or twice a week for a couple years. He showed me all these tips and tricks, how to deal with all this anxiety and this PTSD, which I finally admitted to having. And then I realized, oh, I can still be tough and have that. Okay, cool. And um, I did start to get a lot better. And, but then every now and then there'd be something like, um, I got accepted into ASU, like all these good things started happening. But then there'd be things like, I'm the kind of guy who will go look for his classrooms before the semester starts and like map them out, because I want to be early to every class, because mom, did you probably raise me like that? I don't know, dad. Um, so I was in one art building and I, it was raining and I swear this guy was following me and he was gonna hurt me. It was just me and him in this building and I panicked because there was nowhere for me to run. And I hid in a corner, and I was like, I gotta take this guy out. It doesn't make any sense, I know. And I started hearing Stephen's words in my head as I was hiding, and I called him, and he answered. And I told him what was happening, and he's like, he made me realize it's just a kid looking for his classes. Probably gonna be a friend of yours in a couple weeks. You know, like-minded folks. And sure enough, he passed that corner I was hiding in, and the kid never saw me, but I saw his Hello Kitty backpack. <laughs> and I felt, <laughs> I felt so dumb because <laughs> I, really, I really was going to hurt this guy, and I felt terrible, and Stephen made me realize, you know, this is a good thing, what you just did. You have, you have like, check mark on that obstacle. You've realized when something doesn't add up and you did something about it rather than act about it. You, you reached out for help and you thought about it. So he made me see it as an accomplishment, and I'm with him on that. So... Things are pretty good now. They're not perfect. I still struggle, but I've met the love of my life, and she liked me back, which I'm still wondering why. I'm getting married in five days from today. Yes. Unbelievable. And my three buddies are going to be standing next to me at the wedding. Stephen Shore will be there. If you know him, reach out to him. He's a wonderful guy. The point is, like, um, if you know somebody going through this, like those little cards, call that number. There's good help out there. It's just not gonna fall on your lap. It's not, you have to fight for it. 
You have to advocate for yourself and you cannot give up. There's no way around it, but there is good help. I swear I'm a, a walking, breathing example. And what I was gonna do was to get up here and tell you guys how I'm anti-military and how it took more for me than it gave back. And I was like, yeah, let's do that. Um, I'm gonna talk everyone out of having their kids joining. And I thought about what did it take for me? Um, the hearing in my left ear is gone. The full use of my right wrist, which is my baseball arm, is gone. Um, it took 11 years away from me where I, was, where I could be a part of a normal functioning society. I'll never get that time back. It took my belief in God. It took my faith in our government. I'm like, yeah, that's a lot of stuff. And then I was like, well, what did it give me? And the first, because you gotta be fair, you gotta make the double-sided list. I wrote those three guys' names down and I was done, I put the pen down because I realized how wrong I was. Um, the military gave me three guys who are truly a part of who I am as a human being. I love them as much as I love the head on my shoulders. And I know they feel the same way and you can't get that anywhere else. I got that because of the military. I'm the man I am today because of the military. It took me 14 years to realize that I was, I'm actually proud that I served. That's a long time to live with guilt. And this story, preparing for it, made me realize that. That's incredible. And well, you know, don't stop. Don't. Um, <laughs> So to everyone who said thank you for serving in the past, and I was like, wah, wah, wah. I'm sorry, and thank you for your support. I love you all. That was Ryan Kitchell of Phoenix with A Tour de Force, a story about service in Asia and recovery here in the United States. Ryan, thank you so much for your service and for your story. We'll close our show with a story from Alfredo Gutierrez in Phoenix. For many years, for about seven years, I did a daily radio program in Spanish on Radio Campesina. And for the most part, we talked about uh, immigration issues. We talked about uh, what it meant to be here, how you got here, and the daily sort of understandings of life, how you had to plan if you were going to be uh, deported at work. Uh, by Joe Arpaio, how you had to plan for what, what what's going to happen to your children. Uh, all of those detailed plans we talked about daily. And almost daily, someone would come by and drop by uh, a purse, say. They had crossed the desert. And let me explain. Since, since the era of Bill Clinton, since the border was closed, the desert was the only place you could cross, and thousands of people crossed, and thousands of people died in that desert. The assumption was, of course, that if you force people to cross to the desert, they wouldn't. No one would do that. Who would be crazy enough to do that? That was how poorly they understood the spirit of survival and the spirit of a mother to help her children. But that was the public policy. That continues to be the public policy. And so people would come by, and they'd find a purse. And they'd give me the purse, and inside the purse would be lipstick, a photograph. And it was a photo. I remember one specific time. It was a photo of, uh, of a beautiful young woman holding a child, holding a baby, and another child, a toddler, uh, hugging her leg. And all I was left with on radio was to describe it and hope that somebody would recognize her and somebody would say, yes, she made it. She's alive. 
And at other times, we'd get uh, uh, the, the voter registration card in Mexico, which is essentially a, a uh, national ID in Mexico. We'd get uh, Juan Martinez uh, Losayo, and we'd read it on the air, and ask that if anybody knew he had made it across to give a call. I have to understand, you have to understand something before I go into the story, and that's this, that if you cross this desert and you fall and you die, you probably will never be found because the buzzards will come almost immediately and take out the fleshy parts, and then the coyotes, and then the uh, mountain lions, and then the jaguars, and they will tear the body apart and spread it throughout the desert. You'll probably never be seen again. Thousands die, we don't know who they are. One day, a gentleman came in who wanted to tell his story. He had told it to, uh, to the engineer there, to Maria Barquin, and she was in tears when I arrived to do the program. And she, and she said, you've got, to, you've got to put him in the air. And so I put Don Cesar in the air, and he told this story. I'm gonna tell you his story, as I recall it. Don Cesar came. And he told us this story, his daughter, Lucretia, and her child, her child, six years old, had left Mexico to get away from domestic violence, had left Mexico, had hired a coyote, and had crossed the desert near Altar in, in, uh, in southeastern Arizona, one of the toughest places in the world to cross. And she had come across with a group of, uh, of folks, including the coyotes, and she was ill. And she was getting sicker and sicker. And somewhere on the Arizona side, she died. Now normally, the coyotes would just simply strip the body and keep on moving. But he thought that because of the child, something of the child touched their heart. And so they actually buried her rather than just simply abandon the body. They buried her and went on with the child. When they got to Phoenix, they called the father. And the father flew to Phoenix, took the child, and went home to Mexico. He came back a month and a half later. And when he arrived, he had an idea from what the coyote had told him of where his daughter's body would be. And so he went to the Border Patrol. They heard him out, and they helped him. They helped him for a day. They took him to where more or less they thought it would be, southeastern Arizona, near Sasabe, in the middle of the desert, and there was nothing there. All he knew was that it was near a creek, and, and he had, and there was a rock, and there was a mountain, but he wouldn't leave. He went back day after day. There's an organization in southeastern Arizona on the desert called No Mas Muertes, No More Deaths. And they work every day in the desert, bringing water, finding people who are desperately ill, and bringing them in. They work every day out there. And they saw him. And they adopted him. They said, come with us. And so he would go out every day looking for his daughter. This went on for weeks. 
In the meantime, they found two bodies, but neither was the daughter. And so one morning, one morning, he is looking out into this creek, and there was something gleaming. There was something gleaming. Something caught his eye. It was a reflection from the sun, but it was, it was just gleaming, almost calling him, and he walked towards it. And he walked towards it, and he walked towards it, and it was gleaming. At some point, as he approached it, he realized it was a desiccated hand that was coming out of the creek bed. It was a desiccated hand. And then he saw that it was a reflection of the ring that was causing the light that went directly towards him. And he approached it and he went forward. Now he was in a hurry. Now he was running towards it, towards the hand. And when he arrived at the hand, he realized it was the ring. It was his daughter's ring. He had found his daughter. Thank you. That was Alfredo Gutierrez of Phoenix with a story that makes personal our nation's immigration policy struggle. Today's stories looked at living and dying, from the bottle to the battlefield to the U.S.-Mexico border. The men who shared on today's podcast offered us insights into real suffering, but also into powerful resilience. A huge thanks to the three of them. And a big thanks to you for listening to strangers talk about their feelings on the Storytellers Project podcast. If you know someone who is the very best brunch storyteller, please share this podcast with them over some mimosas. For more, visit us at storytellersproject.com, check us out at Twitter at USA Storytellers, or on Facebook at The Storytellers Project. <laughs>